0: Merry Christmas to those of you for whom this will be your last Sunday before Christmas. We're glad that you are here. and We are thankful for you. We have been looking at a series called Every Story uh, Whispers His Name, where we look at scenes from the Old Testament and how they point to the whole purpose of the Old Testament, which is the coming of Jesus as described in the New. And so today we're looking at a less well-known passage of Scripture from 1 Samuel chapter 25, and here to read the relevant Scriptures, which are in your bulletin and will be on the screen, is Paul.
1: A bit of a longer passage this morning. Please stay with me. It is an awesome passage. 1 Samuel 25, verses 1 to 28. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned for him, and they buried him with his house at, at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Paran, and there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich; he had three thousand sheep and a thousand goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. David David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep, so David sent. Ten young men. And David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel and go to Nabal and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm, and they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men Find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed from my shears and give it to men who come from I do not know where? So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, every man strap on his sword and every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. And about 400 men went up after David while 200 remained with the baggage. Then Abigail made haste and took two hundred loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five sheaths of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and two hundred cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey, and fell before David, and on her face, and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, "'On me alone, my lord, be the guilt. "'Please let your servant speak in your ears, "'and hear the words of your servant. "'Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, "'for as his name is, so is he. "'Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. "'But I, your servant, did not see the young men "'of my lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now let, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house." because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord and the evil, evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. Thank you.
0: I remember once decades ago, it's being single. I was living in Vancouver. I had just been telling a friend of mine a funny story about some older folks who tried to set me up with some girl in Florida that I had never met who was 10 years younger than me. I was rather mocking of the idea, and I expected him to laugh with me, but he didn't. He shook his head at me, and then looked out of the side of his eyes at me, and he said, you are a fool. You do not know her well enough to reject her. That is just pride. Fool? Me? I was pretty upset. Does my friend know what he's saying? Do you know what it means to be a fool? It means to lack any sense. It means someone who completely misses the point. Someone who is blind to reality. This person who I've never met, different culture, 10 years younger than me, who's the fool? Well, 18 months after that conversation, I was in a hotel lobby in Fort Collins, Colorado on July 22nd, 1995 at 6 p.m. at the Marriott Hotel. And into that hotel walked a woman, that woman from Florida, and she blew up my life. She smiled, and the earth moved. (laughs) I turned to the board member whom I was talking to at that time, and I said, excuse me, there's someone that I need to meet. And then I turned, and I ran. I ran through the lobby of the Marriott Hotel, and as I ran, I said to myself, Dan McDonald, what kind of fool are you? running after a woman you have never met. A very different kind of fool. A fool who had awakened from his blindness and his pride to see the beauty that had escaped him until that very moment. A fool who regretted his former pride, a fool now throwing aside all pride for the sake of love. Now in my 27th year of marriage to that woman from Florida, I can look back and say, I was two kinds of fools. I was a proud, independent, culturally sophisticated fool. And then I was a dazzled, love-struck, I don't care if the world laughs at me kind of fool. And I'm so glad I moved from the first kind of fool to the second kind of fool. And I have a question for you. What kind of fool are you? What kind of fool are you? Are you a love struck, bedazzled, I don't care what the world thinks, I'm going to follow after my beloved kind of fool? Or are you a proud, culturally sophisticated, I will do what I want and be whom I think the world will applaud kind of fool? The question this passage invites us to ask is that. It's a small episode in the Old Testament. It's not well known. It's not famous. It's in a period of Jewish history, mostly forgotten. There's a king named Saul, but there's a young man who was a shepherd named David, and Saul is an immoral king, and David has been prophesied to be the future king, and Saul hates David, and so he's chasing David, and David is in the wilderness, and this is where we pick up our story. David wandering in the wilderness, meeting a woman of surpassing wisdom, beauty and character, who does something so profoundly beautiful in and of itself that most of us will miss the even more profound thing that it signifies and points toward. Because in this passage, we see a king, we see a fool, and we see a righteous mediator between the two. In this passage, if we have eyes to see, we will see God, we will see ourselves, and we will see Jesus. This passage invites us to ask, what kind of God do we see? What kind of fool are we? And what kind of Jesus is he? What kind of God do we see? The passage starts out with a description of David he is a man of utmost integrity. In the previous chapters, he has shown himself to be so. He has just spared the life of Saul when Saul was out trying to assassinate him, and David had opportunity to kill him, but chose not to. And here we have David in the wilderness remaining a man of integrity. He found some shepherds with flocks, the flocks of a wealthy man, and he protected them You don't have all the verses, but it's very clear from all of the story that David and his 600 men have been the protectors of these flocks for a period of time so that none of the flocks were assaulted, taken, guilty, um, subject to robbery or harm. They have prospered under his care and watchful eye. And so when the time arrives for these sheep to be brought in, to be sheared, and for the feast of celebration, David comes to the owner of the sheep he has been protecting for uh, several weeks, probably months, and asks him graciously for some food from the feast to feed his own men. In his pronouncement to Nabal, he says, peace. Peace three times, peace to you, peace to your house, peace to all that you have, peace that he himself has helped create. And then he asks Nabal to give back freely a portion as he feels led out of gratitude and courtesy for what has been done to him by David. Men and women, this is actually a picture of God for us to see. The God who created us, who gave you life, who nurtured us, who protected us, who gave us a beautiful world to inhabit, parents to care for us, a mind to think, bodies to grow up in, brains to understand, eyes to see, and food to eat, abilities to help us work and flourish. The God whose protection is so sometimes in the background that we forget that it is He who has gifted this to us. Can you see the reality behind the world you live in? The natural world and all of its beauty, the regular rhythms of night and day and sunshine and rain, the for plants to grow and feed us and animals to delight us and provide for us food and clothing, the wood and brick and brains and technology to make life out of nature and art out of stuff. David here is a picture of the God who has protected you, for you, and provided for you, and created the world that allowed you to be you. A God who deserves our gratitude and thanks, and he comes to us graciously, asking for us out of the freedom of our hearts and wills, and out of the reality of the plenitude of his protection and his provision, to say to us, I gladly acknowledge you and give you what is your due. And what kind of response does David get for all of his protection, his kindness, his provision? The kind of response that is oh so typical of us in our modern culture. The response of a fool. Now we get to the second point. What kind of fool are we? This is what Nabal says. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? This is Nabal. He's the owner of the sheep the recipient of all the gracious protection and provision of David. Now, Nabal, for those of us who don't know, it's not a nice name. It literally means folly or senselessness. Now, if you're a Bible geek, you should know that whenever someone is named like a class, like Adam or Eve or Nabal, you're to pay attention because he is the personification of of a fool. Listen to him. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? Many servants today are breaking away, i.e. rebelling wrongfully from their masters. That's what he's accusing David of. You see, David, I'm telling you, you are not worthy of my time. You are not worthy of my acknowledgement. You're not worthy of my trust, my consideration, or my gratitude. Who are you? It's a shocking response to David's generosity. It's diminishing his identity. It's diminishing his importance. It's diminishing the greatness of what he has done for Nabal. Blind to the reality of David, who is the true coming king of Israel, who rightly deserves his acknowledgement and gratitude, he is a fool, but more than a fool. He shows his true colors. I, my, 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 I my, I, seven times, the biblical number for completeness. Nabal uses the word my or I. He is saying what his heart actually feels. It is the deification of himself. I am the master of my own fate. I am the God of my own universe. This men and women, is the height of folly, mine. The fool says in his heart, there is no God, says Psalm 53. And this is what he is doing. I am the only God there is. It is the height of folly to deny the existence and goodness of God. And the symptom of that folly is this kind of attitude, mine, golem-like, A possessive, defiant spirit, a refusal to submit that corrupts and destroys. But this verse says it ain't just Gollum. It's you and I who need to ask and answer the question, what do I think is mine? Whose car are you driving? Whose clothes are you wearing? Whose money is in your account? Whose food are you eating? We always say, it's mine. But what this passage presses us to think on is that there is someone who created us and gave us these things as good gifts. And as our creator and the giver of these gifts, he has the right to be acknowledged, to be trusted, to be obeyed. This is our God. He has the right to ask of us all that we have and all that we are. Isaiah 43, verse six and seven, I will say to the north, give up. And I will say to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I have created for my glory. Not yours. Implications. If you're an average Toronto resident, you probably think I'm overstating the case. You think, I have a right to my stuff. I earned it. I worked for it you did. You have more right to your stuff than the company that pays you, sure. But I'm not comparing you to the company that pays you for the work you did for them. I'm I'm comparing you to the God who created you with the ability to do all that work. Who gave you that ability? If nobody gave you that ability, if the universe is just the impersonal chemical reaction of time and chance and life is really without God, then why do you think you are worth anything? What is mine? There are no property rights if we're just all random acts of Adam smashing against each other. If Darwin was essentially right, then this life is just a struggle for power and apex predators get to win. So why do we hate injustice when injustice is simply apex predators using their greater strength to oppress, kill, vilify, and win? Why do we hate the war in Ukraine? Why do we hate racism or sexism or the fact that the wealthy and powerful get to shape the laws in their favor? How can we hate? what we believe just happens to be. It makes no sense. You can't square the two. You can assert that the world has no meaning other than the survival of the strongest, but you cannot at the same time rail against the strongest using their power to oppress the weak to survive. You can't have it both ways. If the world means nothing, then justice is just an illusion. If justice means something, so does the world because the world has meaning and someone gave it to us. Who? What kind of fool are we? Christian, there may be parts of our life that we have to admit we say, mine. God, I believe in you. God, I've trusted my life with you generally. But you see these three closets? Yeah, they're mine. Leave them alone. I will follow you, God, if they're mine. Nabal-like, there are things in our life we don't want touched. Because we think for whatever reason we won't be whole without them, and we don't want God to take them. Often it's money, not because we're all greedy, but because money is the gateway drug that buys us what we mostly want. Reputation, friends, experiences, pleasure, power. Money's often in there as a symptom. But what do you say to God, don't touch? Mine. You're when you do that. That's what kind of fool you are. Because the love of God has not so bedazzled you that it has completely freed you and filled you. You still think you need closet A, B, and C as well as the love of God to be fully whole. Men and women, wherever you are in your journey of faith, this word is true. The wages of sin is death. Your soul gets killed by the things you stop God from touching because you say mine. What kind of God do we see? A God of protection and provision and kindness and grace who comes to us asking for us to give him our trust, our obedience, our stuff. What kind of fool are we? We're the kind of fools that say mine. But what kind of Jesus do we see here? Abigail is who shows up and takes center stage. Of all the pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament, this one is the clearest and most beautiful to me. Not sure why commentators generally don't see her as a Jesus figure, because this is the most Jesus like figure in almost all of the Old Testament. Firstly, let's note who she is. She's beautiful and she's wise. Inside and out, she's wonderful. Wise in the Old Testament, by the way, is considered one of the cardinal virtues. And it's the particular virtue most needed and most wanted and most expected in royalty. So there's a hint of royalty in this initial character description of her right at the beginning. Then, as the plot goes on and we find out about Nabal and David's anger, we see something very much more profound. Because David incensed at Nabal's lack of gratitude, and the rude response is going to slaughter him. He's got 400 men. They've got their sword. This will be ugly. And Abigail knows what kind of fool Nabal is being when she finds out. He's being such a fool that he has alienated himself from the true king. He has made his own life forfeit. Because of his one act, the whole family are about to experience the searing judgment of the rightful king of Israel, but Abigail is married to this fool, and out of love for him, she doesn't flee to save her own life. She goes toward the judgment to save his. Look what she does. She prepares a gift offering for the king that will be sufficient to meet his reasonable expectations. Then she rides toward the king alone. Then she says to David three words that give us the key to this whole passage. On me alone. David knows Nabal's the one who's guilty. She knows Nabal's the one who's guilty. She even says folly is his name. Yet she says, despite the fact that I'm innocent and he's guilty, put his guilt on me, on me alone. If you can't see Jesus in this picture, you're a fool indeed. Look at the parallels. She's beautiful in and out She decides to be married to a fool and then to save that fool in love. Listen to what Jesus did. In Ephesians 5, in a verse on marriage, it says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. Jesus did this for us. He decided to be married to his people, and his engagement ring and his marriage ring was his own life and death and resurrection. Then she prepares a costly and sufficient sacrifice to satisfy this rightfully angered king. Jesus, says Hebrew chapter 7, was our high priest who gave the sufficient sacrifice to pay the debt for all our sins. Hebrews 7, verse 27, he has no need like other high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he has done this once for all when he offered up himself. Jesus is himself the costly sacrifice. On me alone, she says, taking all of the guilt, Despite being guiltless, she's just like Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And the question you have to ask yourself is, why did Abigail do that? Why didn't she just stay out of the way or run away when Nabal was about to be killed? What kind of fool does that? the second kind of fool, the one so bedazzled by her love that she's willing to spend her life for her spouse. Why did Jesus do what he did for you and me? Because Jesus was that kind of fool. Out of a love that overshadowed all things, out of the depth of his love for you and for me, he left the comfort of his heavenly home. He came running down to us, John chapter one says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he went willingly not into the threat of death as she did, but into its certainty of death, unlike anybody. And he paid the sacrifice that turned the anger of God against us into the joyful acceptance of us as his children because in the gospel God's not quite like David in the gospel. God from all time and all eternity had planned to forgive us and Jesus had agreed to it and they'd agreed to this plan. But I want to ask you, what kind of fool are you Are you the kind of fool that says, mine? Who is God that he should ask this of me? Is there something you're keeping from God? Is that the kind of fool you are? Then you are just keeping up corruption for your heart and judgment for your soul. If you are not yet a Christian, Jesus offers you full forgiveness. And says to you, come, I became the second kind of fool. Stop being the first. Stop saying mine. And come and say, I'm yours. If you by faith will come to him, he will come to you and forgive you. What kind of fool are you? If you're a Christian and you're holding on to something, let it go. Open your hand and your heart to God this Christmas, and let him flood in with his grace and his love, and let it bedazzle you all over again." What kind of God is he? He's both David, the God who deserves your acknowledgement, and Abigail, the mediator who comes despite your rebellion and sacrifices himself and intercedes for you, both of them together. That is the God we have. Rejoice the word. At the word of his father became flesh to do the will of his father and him to redeem you by giving us life for you. Enter into the joy of Christmas. Let's pray. Father, I thank you and I praise you for your goodness and your grace. And I ask now that you would come to us and show us your beauty, your provision, your grace, your love, and the costliness of your interceding for us. We pray in Christ's precious name. Amen.